The following is from the teaching ministry of First Baptist Church of Royal City, Washington. More teaching like this can be found at graceteaching.net or searching Grace-Oriented Teaching wherever you get your podcasts. Now, here is our speaker. Sorry. Let's have a word, word of prayer. Father, we're thankful for the evening. Thanks for those you brought out. I ask that you might encourage us through your word tonight as we understand hopefully more about your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for it. Amen. So if you take your Bibles and turn to John 14, we'll read through the text that I hope we can get through this evening. John 14, we're going to put in in verse 7. We just got done looking, spent quite a bit of time on verse 6. It's a big verse in this, in this book. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The significance of those statements, uh, I, I don't think any of us in any way underestimate how, how significant they are. Throw the word significant in there twice, I guess. That's how significant it is. Anyway, but verse 7. Let's begin reading verse 7, and I'll just try to stick to the English for the time being here. So, verse 7. If you, Because uh, he's talking here, because the disciples, back in verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we know... We do not know where you are going, so how do we know the way? Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, verse 7. If you know me, you will know the Father, my Father also. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. And Philip said to him, Oh, Lord, show us the Father, and that would be enough. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am the Father? Am in the Father, and the Father is in me. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. But if you do not, then believe me because of the works themselves. Very truly I tell you that the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. And in fact, he will do greater works than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in Ask me in my name so that the Father may be glorified by the Son. If if in my name you ask me for anything, I will do it. So going back up to verse 7, as he gets done saying, uh, no one comes to the Father except through me, and then he tells him, if you have experientially known me, then you have experientially known the Father, and from now on you know him and you have seen him. It's a perfect tense. Have seen, meaning the result, you saw him in the past, or the result, you're continuing to see him. Or there's a the image there burned into your eye, as it were. This really, I think you and I get this, because we've sat in lots of Bible studies over the years in different places, and we've read our Bibles, and we know more. But at this time, and we, we continue to say this, these disciples, even at this juncture, they have, they still have questions. Every one of these 11 disciples all believe Jesus is God. But they don't fully understand what that means. The significance of that escapes them. But then I think it escapes us sometimes when we try to put all of this together. If you remember back in verse 1 of chapter 14, he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In other words, don't you get the point I've been getting at in my earthly ministry? The faith you put in God the Father is the same faith you should be putting in me, he's saying. Because, well, they are indeed one. And so now he's telling them, if you've known me, you've known the Father. Philip says to him, 
Lord, show us the Father. That would be enough for us. Show us the Father. We want to see the Father. And uh, again, this is because Philip, It's again, it's because these disciples do not fully understand all of this. Do they believe Jesus is God? Mm -hmm. Yes. Do they understand what that means for them? No, this is what they're still struggling with. And so Jesus says to him, I've been with you such a long time. You do not experientially know me, Philip. The one that has seen me has seen the Father. So how do you ask to show the Father? In other words, he's trying to get at, don't you realize what I've been telling you all along? Is he really asking to see a uh, vision of the Father? Because, like, I mean, Moses was insulated when he saw him, and then he started glowing and everything. So, I mean, doesn't, doesn't he understand that if he actually... If he saw the father, that the same or worse would happen to him. Um, I, 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 or is he asking for a sign? No, I, I really think that Philip, that they, these guys are under the impression that when the when the kingdom comes and Christ is on the throne, they're going to get to see the father, and so he's thinking at this juncture, now isn't this what you're getting at? You're going to show the father to us. We're going to get to see the father. I think they're really expecting. It. We're going to see the father. We're going to be presented right there before. In fact, we're going to be sitting on the throne with Christ. But we're going to be changed before that happens, because if we saw it now, it would kill us. That's Well, is, is that absolutely true? If we saw him in that way, it would, we would, I don't think we would survive. But like you said, Moses did see him. It says Moses saw it. He says, you're not going to see me here, but you're going to see my back. I'll, I'll, I'll pass by you. I'll put my hand over I'll pass by, and then I'll take my hand away, and then you get to, to see me from behind. And I don't know what that means. How do you see God from behind? Well, I think Somehow in this... it's insulated. Yeah, in some way, in some way, God would protect him from his full-on... Glory, yeah. Yeah. Brightness. Yeah. Because, yeah. We all... You ever, been in, you ever been in a crowd where... I hate to say this, but I'm someplace and I'm out with Peg and we get separated. I'm looking around for her and I can't remember what she put on that day. That that's, that doesn't happen a lot, but there's been a time or two that this has happened. One time, maybe one time it happened. <laughs> but, and then you're looking through a crowd and you see someone going, is that her over there? You know, you can't, I can't see the length of her hair. I can kind of see the top of her head and a shoulder sticking out behind a clothing rack at pennies or something, you know. And then the person turns around and you're like, oh, no, that's not Peg, you know. You're glad Olivia? you didn't walk. You did, what? Olivia? <laughs> <laughs> yes. And we'll have to talk about Olivia later. Okay. It's not, that is not me personally. That was a, that's a joke. But um, the significance he's getting at here is, is yeah, they, he wants, they want to see the Father. And so he brings up this statement, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Now, the interesting thing about this statement is that Jesus uses this several times here in, um, uh, in the Gospel of John. John records this for us, this idea, if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. I need to turn my pages on my notes in terms of, uh, so I can just make sure I stay on track, what he means by this. Um, Turn back, keeping your finger here, but turn back to chapter 10. Chapter 10. When we get back to chapter 10, I want you to go up to uh, verse 28. Chapter 10, verse 28. 
this is Jesus speaking of himself and the sheep and the, as the shepherd. And he says, and I give to them eternal life and they will never come into ruin, into the age. Uh, and no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. And my father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one's able to snatch them out of my father's hand. So is it Christ's hand or is it the father's hand? Well, verse 30, I and the father are one substance yeah and when you're talking about this i mean what what is it that holds us i mean does god have a literal giant hand that reaches down and holds us spirit hand it's a power it's god's power so hand is a, a metaphor for power it's a metaphor for god's divine power his divine power is holding us secure so hand is a metaphor for god's power and we get that we have other verses in scripture that use the word grasp as a metaphor for power but it's a word meaning to grasp or seize to hold on with with strength and so we even have it that's a different word than we have than we have uh, uh, here in this context but then it as a result verse 31 and the Jews took up stones again that they might stone him and Jesus replied many good works I have displayed to you from the father for which of those works do you stone me it goes back. What, what work? What work? What work? Keep that in mind. And the Jews answered him, We are not stoning you for a good work, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. See, they understood what he meant, what he what he meant when he made this statement about his hand and the Father's hand. They got this. People today go, Oh, Jesus never claimed to be God. The Jews knew that he was God, and he doesn't go, Oh, sorry guys, I was misunderstood. No. I thought he said, like Adam was, how does that go? The Mormon saying? Oh. As Adam was, so are we. As Adam is, so shall we be. That's yeah. In other words, we'll advance into godhood. We'll, we'll evolve. He yeah, he does not say that, no. And so verse 34, therefore Jesus replied, has it not been written in your law? I said, you are gods. Now he says that kind of tongue in cheek as he's chiding them in the Old Testament when he makes this statement, if those then he called gods and the word of God cannot then, uh, to whom the word of God came and the, the scriptures cannot be broken. In other words, you can't destroy them. So you can't just take that Bible, that verse and throw it out. You have to stand. If he chided them with that, then it says that the one whom the father has set apart or sanctified and sent into the world, do you say that he blasphemes because I said I'm the son of God? Again, verse 36 is another statement helps us understand that to claim to be son of God is a claim to deity. So this is, this is what's going on. If I do not do the works of my father, then don't believe me. Now, I don't know if you remember this. This has been, this has been a few months back in our study, but when we were, getting, when we were doing the lead up in the signs, we took a night... And I don't have them here because I have them in my other little notebook. But we went through all these statements that Jesus said about, I'm doing, I'm saying the word, words the Father gave me to say. I'm doing the works the Father gave me to do. These are, this is what my Father told me to say. These are the works my Father gave me to do. And he was doing them without fail. Does God have works for you to do? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> do we do them without fail? No. Do we have things that God might want us to say? Do we say those without fail? No. no. 
But Jesus did all, all those things and he did them perfectly. He did all these things. He communicated accurately. Uh, and I think we know, I'm just going to say this because I was thinking about this earlier today uh, with regard to another situation. But, you know, when I teach or anybody, Josh teaches, anybody else teach, any of you teach, we are hopefully representing the revelation of God. But what's coming out of our mouth is not infallible word. Everything that came out of Jesus' mouth was always infallible. He never goes, oh, oh wait a second, blunder, I tripped over my tongue. I meant to say Jew, I accidentally said Gentile. You know, Does Tim do that once in a while? Yeah. And then people are going, oh, no, no, I don't think that's what you meant. And I'm like, what did I say? I'll comment on that. It's, uh, there's times back when I was younger that just the very concept that you're supposed to be representing God's word it would make it very um, difficult sometimes to talk about it because you want to make everything just perfect, right? Mm -hmm. But um, it can actually immobilize you so that you can't really, you have to make yourself vulnerable and you just, I finally had to accept, I'm not going to say everything right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's it. And then, you know, and actually I think I, I became more productive when I stopped trying to hold myself to a standard of being perfect yeah you're speaking out of a part and you are fallible and you're not inerrant and you're not you know you're only accurate as you communicate god's word and you have to leave it to the, the spirit's the divine teacher that's right so anything that's wrong you know maybe you lead somebody astray but god's bigger than that you know uh, you're always amazed when you teach a whole message and the person only dwells on one thing it might be the wrong thing and it might be the right thing you know it's their responsibility to be spiritual. Anyways, not saying that, not to make light of it. No. No. I'm, I, I'm just making the point that that we're, we're not infallible. Mm -hmm. and, and we don't want to be immobilized, as Josh is saying. We want to move ahead and we want to be able to teach this. But there's no guarantee that everything I teach is infallible. I've had I've had plenty of people in our church over, over the years. Uh, plenty of people. That sounds like lots and lots. But there, I've there have been times that I've had people come and say, "Wait a second, you said this today, or you said this last week." And I'm reading my Bible, and I don't get that. And you go through it, and you come back, and you have to say, "You know, I was wrong. I was wrong about that." And I could stop and say, "Well, I'm not ever going to pastor again. I'm never going to teach another Bible study because I was wrong that time." You know. But we're not fallible. You, I think that's a bent. There is a one benefit when we read Acts, and we see that Paul actually bullheadedly goes ahead and does something God doesn't want him to do, even though others tell him through, the, the Spirit tells him through other people, don't do this, he does it anyway. What does that tell me? Even the Apostle Paul was not in, infallible. So I have a question then. That leads me to then thinking that Jesus, um, uh, when he did things... Um, from his human nature, just without the help from his divine nature or whatever. He did the things that the fathers said for him to do and said the things the fathers said for him to say. Um, and he was like right all the time. Mm -hmm. So he's right all the time in his human nature? Yeah. Because mm -hmm. if, if he could be wrong, and that's because ultimately his human nature has... His human nature cannot be in contradiction to his divine nature. Because what you're doing is, it's not just in the nature that's messed up, it's his person. It's who he is. He is man and he is, he is divine. If he can make a mistake in his human nature, then he as a person has made a mistake. He's done something wrong. And that's what Satan was trying to do the whole time when he tempted him, uh -huh. was 
get the appeal to the human nature, nature right. and compromise the divine. And the whole thing was, it, a lot of those things were not bad, it was just not the timing God had. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, right. it was so, would be it would be acting out of the will of God. Mm -hmm. So, um, do you think a lot of that why why Jesus? You're saying that because of his who he is with his deity, but I'm I'm just trying to get at the thing like he didn't have a sin nature and we do. So does the sin nature affect us so much that we make mistakes because we're just human with a sin nature? Oh, I th absolutely. I think we do. And that's and and Jesus didn't have that sin nature, you know, so he didn't have that to to worry about mm -hmm. um, to to make blunders or whatever. Mm -hmm. You don't have to go over and look at this, but you might want to write it down. We've looked at this before when we looked at that list, but this is from John four four where after they've been down to Judea, it says, and it was necessary for him to pass through Samaria. And, and some, a lot of com some commentators come to this and go, yeah, well, because that's the way he traveled. The straightest route was from Judea. You went through Samaria, you went back up to Galilee. But you know that there were a lot of Jews that didn't do that. There were a lot of Jews that went off to the east and they followed the Jordan Valley up to avoid going through Samaria. But when it says it was necessary for him to pass through Samaria, that's because there was an appointment that God the Father had with him to meet a woman at a well. And just think of what we learned from that, that, that encounter, both what he says to her as well as, um, as her experience. So back in John 10 here where we are then, he's talking about this. Pick up again with verse 38 where we were talking. But if I do... Uh, uh, Back in verse 37, if I do not perform the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even if you don't believe me, then believe by means of or, or believe in the works so that you, might, uh, that you might know and might continue knowing that I am in the Father and the Father is, and, or excuse me, that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. That that expression, um, I pulled out notes on this from way back the first year I was here because I we went through the upper room discourse back then, and 31 years ago, and I pulled these notes out because even back then I wrest I wrestled with what this expression meant. It was like to me that was just like I didn't get it. I get it now. He's talking about the fact that he's in the, it's the it's the best way for him to say I and the Father are. What did he say back in verse 30? We are one thing. But we're still two distinct persons. I'm not the Father, and the Father's not me. I'm in him, and he's in me. We are one thing. We're one nature. But we're still, the Son knows who he is and doesn't go, okay, am I the Father? What am I, am I supposed, you know? It's, it's not a one-man show. I, I, I say this because there is, uh, in, I, I have actually met a couple of them now. Um, I remember Ben said, uh, this was years ago when Moana was going on. You guys had been skiing one one weekend, and he comes back, and one of the guys he started talking with on ski slopes is a guy that's a oneness Pentecostal. If you guys don't know what a oneness Pentecostal is, and I'm, I'm sure there are other people than just oneness Pentecostals, but they're people that believe there's one God. Okay, sounds good. We're that we're on the same page, but they believe that one God is Jesus. 
and that the Father and the Spirit are not persons, they're just different masks that the, that the Son puts on. Yeah, so they believe that there's only one person who is God, and that he puts on the Father mask to come out, and then he puts a Spirit mask and comes out, but it's always just God the Son that's doing this. That means that that expression of God is a facade, in, which would mean that it's not God. Yeah, and I, I had one of these guys come by many years ago and was talking to me at the church. He was looking for some space to have meetings, and so I start talking to him about pretty soon. I find out, I mean, and I don't know if you know this about Oneness Pentecostals. Let's put it this way. Every, and I was just having this conversation with my son-in-law this last weekend. Everybody I've ever known that has something messed up about God the Son, they always... They always believe in salvation by works in some way. Because if God the Son isn't really who the Bible says he is, then your salvation isn't going to be. This is why Mormons believe you have to do good works and be baptized, because there's something about the Son they do not fully appreciate. Catholics do the same thing. Most of Catholic doctrine is very orthodox, according to the scriptures, with regard to God the Son. But they have a problem that they've introduced Mary as the mother of God. And she did not mother his deity in any way. And they were going to say, well, that's not what we meant. But that's this impression that it gives. It messes people up with regard to who Jesus Christ really is. Therefore, again, you're saved by sacraments, by baptism. And when it's Pentecostals, you're saved by baptism and good works. And if you came to our church, you couldn't get saved. Because when we baptize people, usually kind of somewhat out of tradition, we say, I'm baptizing you in, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I don't know that any of the apostles actually said those words over people when they baptized them. I don't know that that's specifically what he meant to do, but let's say they did. They would say that doesn't take. You can say you can only say, I baptize you in the name of Jesus. If you say, and say I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you're not saved. You can't get saved if you add the Father and the Spirit. So they're superstition. Yeah, they are so wrapped up in this idea of just this one, this one person. And so this statement that he makes here in John 10, which he also repeats over there in John 14. So let's go back over to John 14 as he's talking about this. John 14 and verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father or I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I speak, they're not from my... So in other words, and he repeats this one other time, John 17, 21 also, he does the same thing. And over there, by the way, he makes a comparison to us. We should go look at that one. I do have that one down here, and I think it's interesting. Because this is one. Of, this is a comparative text. What's the other verse? 17, 21. I said 23. 17, 21. Let's go to verse 20. He says... I'm not asking concerning these only, that is just for these 12, but also for those who believe, who believe in me through their word. That's us. We aren't part of the original 11. We've believed through, what? We've believed through their word. We read about it. So verse 21, uh, and this is what he asked then, in order that they might all be one thing. What is that one thing that we all are? We're all the body of Christ. Even as or comparatively to you, 
comparative to you, Father, in me and I in you, that they also might be one thing in us. But he uses a comparative adverb there, even as, comparatively as, the way we are one, that we are one thing in them. We all are, we may, that's an important thing. Some, and I think if you understand of this, when you're in the body of Christ, you don't lose your, you don't lose your personal identity. I'm still Tim. Uh, I'm even going to get a new name out in the future that's between me and, and Christ. But we're also also part of the one body of Christ. And so some of my identity in terms of what I was when I was born, things like that, that status is gone. But I'm still Tim in some sense. And Peg's still Peg and so on and so forth. We don't all of a sudden just kind of become this Milan and God throws us all in the food processor and hits. And now we've just got this body of Christ mess. It's not that. It's something organized. It is, but it's com it's comparative to the way that the Father and the Son are. They interpenetrate one another. They're one thing, yet they still maintain their individual personal identity. Because if it was the same thing, then that would make us gods. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's why he just uses a comparative ad. So it's comparative the way that we are like them. Now, if we go back over there to John 14, then finish this up here, what he's talking about. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words which I speak, I do not speak from myself, but my Father that abides in me, this is really interesting. Look what he does. He does his works. What what was the statement started out about? Words. Words. But it ends by him referring to works. works. Because the whole thing from his point of view, whether he was speaking or doing signs, they were all what the Father was doing. Just to put this in another, to turn this around of what he's getting at, is if the Father had come down here and he had become man rather than the Son. That wasn't God's plan. But just say, if it had, the Father, would you would have seen him do exactly and say exactly the same things that the Son did. It wouldn't have been any different. Got that? So when they were listening to Jesus, they're listening to the Father. Because it's a perfect plan, not because they're carbon copies of each other. No, Well, it's because they're one God, but they are still two persons. This is, I remember the oneness Pentecostal guy, I said, so when Jesus was baptized and the heavens opened and the father said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, he goes, yeah, that was the son talking about himself. Okay. And I said, and when Jesus prayed to, to the father, when he says, father, forgive them, they don't know what they do, he says, yes, he's talking to himself. And over in John 17, when he... Well, I talk to myself, but I, uh, yeah. I think I'm a little nuts when I do that. Yeah, he says, he, he, like he's patting himself on the back. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well done, about son. a body I have prepared for you? Yeah, mm -hmm. I know. It, it, it doesn't make any sense. There's no logic to it. I mean, you come to John 17. How about John 1.1? 1, 1? Facing. Yeah. 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 It's just, there's... It was God. That's really... Oh, yeah, There's two yeah. persons that were God. That's what that communicates. Yeah. That's right. Two persons and so with this, we're going to do, let's see how long we've been going. We haven't even been going a half hour. So we're going to do, we're going to do in the last part of our Bible study tonight, we are doing crash course in Trinitarianism. Mm -hmm. 
crash course. So we're going to start over. This is the verse. If you if, if you don't have these verses written down, this is a set of verses. I'm not saying these are absolutely perfect, but I would write these down and look through them, study them. Maybe you find better ones. But we're going to start in Deuteronomy 6.4. Deuteronomy 6.4. Because lots of people, Mormons are one of them, that think when they, when we, they talk about the Trinity... I found out lots of them when they talk to me, they kind of think that what we mean is we believe in we believe in three gods. Which fits their thinking because they believe in multiple gods in that way. So in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Let's read it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. One. It's one. We don't, Israel didn't have plural gods, they had one God. It's very important for us to start with that. Isaiah chapter 45. I love this set of verses. I, every once in a while we, have, we go back through these. And uh, I think a couple years back when Ben was doing uh, a study on the Lord Jesus Christ, he went through a whole bunch of these with us. And I just, every time I go through these or somebody else does, I really appreciate these. So 45. Isaiah 45, verse 5. He says, I am the Lord. There is no other, no God besides me. <laughs> Get that? I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. What verse? Sorry. Those were verses um, 5 and 6. Of Isaiah 45. Go down to verse 21. And by the way, I've shared these verses with Mormons. I've shared these verses with Jehovah's Witnesses. And it, they, it, it doesn't change their minds. God has to do that. That doesn't mean if they don't ask a question, you can't show them one of these verses, but just don't think that you can pig pile on them a whole bunch of verses and it's gonna they're gonna the the weight of scripture is gonna push down on them and it's gonna convince them. It never works that way. What's the next one? The next one is Isaiah chapter um, forty five verse twenty one. Let's go uh, he says uh, tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let their let them uh, take counsel together. Who has declared this from the ancient of times? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior, none besides me. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By the way, since we're not reading the whole context, he is mocking Israel chasing after false gods. So that's why I keep saying, I'm the only God there is. I don't know what you guys are doing chasing after all these other gods. It's really foolish. Turn back to chapter 43, Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43 and verse 10. You are my witness, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. Now, some people have come to that and say, well, it looks like God was formed. That's not what he's getting. He's just trying to say, there wasn't a God that came before me. 
because people teach that, that he's one in a succession of gods, such as Mormons, what's and that there's going to be gods coming after him. What's your reference for um, Isaiah 43, 10 and 11. There's not a succession of gods. There's just one God, one true God. That's all there is. And then Isaiah 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of us. This is really interesting because you have two persons. They're both called God here. Thus says... 44.6. Oh, oh, you're checking them. Um, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. So there's actually two persons, both identified uh, as Jehovah, and both of them with different significance. Both of them have a different significance in this context. I am the first, I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. So it's interesting. You have one person speaking, but he's speaking for two persons who are both God. Mm -hmm. And what does he say? Me. me. Yeah, me. There's no other. So he doesn't have a problem with one of them speaking for both of them because they are one God in this context. Um. Turn, turn over to Romans chapter 3. And this is one that doesn't you're not going to see in all of your Bibles because some of them, well, we'll just see how it translates in your Bible. But I've found some English Bibles they just don't represent there. Now, my Bible says, out of the English, since God is one. Where this is Romans 3.30. I'm sorry, Romans 3.30. Maybe I didn't give the verse. I apologize. Romans 3.30, yes. Since God is one, he will justify the circumcision on the ground of faith, or literally out of faith, and the uncircumcision through faith, which we're not here to talk about the last half of the verse, but the first part, God is one. Does everybody's Bible start with that? God is one? Is one. Okay, and the reason they do that is because that's the way the Greek is written. That is one uh, is right at the beginning, but they but it, but one comes before it, so it they flip it around in the way they put it together. But First Thessalonians chapter one, First Thessalonians chapter one, verse nine. Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9. It says, For they themselves, these other people that uh, when Paul left, when Paul went out uh, down into Achaia from Macedonia, it says, For they themselves have reported concerning us what sort of uh, entrance we had to you and how you turned to the God from idols to serve the living and true God. Not living and true gods, but living and true God. In other words, He's looking at all other gods as false. Now, it doesn't say God's one here, but it puts it in the singular, the living and true God. Okay? So he says, you turned to the living and true God. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 5. And it says, for God is one. God is one. And then there's one mediator of God and man, the man Christ Jesus. 
Now, some people look at this as though Christ Jesus is a meteor and not the God, but that the whole point is there's one God, and he's a meteor because he's both God and man. He's part of both. That's what made him this mediator in this way. But there's one God, he says. Now, having said that there's one God, and we probably took more time than was necessary, but I think it's really good for us. As we really believe in the Trinity. You have to start the Trinity by saying there's not many gods. There's not multiple gods. Because we have other verses that say there are many gods. Paul says that over in 1 Corinthians. But Paul says, but they're false gods. They're fakes. <laughs> they're, they're created beings that he made that run around and pretend like they're gods out there. Spirit beings. But that's not surprising because how many people in the history of the world have run around thinking that they're gods? And not just because they're crazy, but because they're just full of themselves sometimes. Not fake as in they don't exist, but fake as in they are they're not, not deity. Yeah, yeah. That's something that's kind of cool about that passage back in John when he says, doesn't the scripture say ye are gods or whatever? And uh, it, he's being sarcastic. But if you go back and read it, he's talking about demonic judges that are demon possessed yeah and so he's talking about strong ones spirit beings who are you know and the same things going on when you know so it's really tongue-in-cheek kind of and cheeky what he's saying mm -hmm. the, those guys those didn't do the works of god like he did but he was doing them so they really ought to believe in him so now let's go back to Genesis. Having looked at several passages that tell us that God is one, and those were not all of those. In fact, we should have gone to the Jeremiah verse. If you do Awanas, there's a Jeremiah verse over there about the true, the one true God. And I, that was one of those verses that I, until I did Awana, I didn't, I never, I don't know that I ever seen that verse. Pagan, Genesis I, what? Genesis one, and we're gonna go when you get there, go to verse twenty six. Um, Peg and I'd read through the Bible several times before I started helping with Awana. Jeremiah? Yeah, and I don't remember exactly where the statement is. I'd have to go look it up. But it talks about the true God, the living God, the one God. But anyway, Genesis chapter 1. I'm just going to ask you, we're going to read through this verse, and then I want you to make an observation on this. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said... Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. I'll just stop there. God, us. God, us. Okay. I heard you in one ear, and I couldn't hear everything you were saying, so you were saying? Singular God, us, speaking in itself as plural. Okay. And you were saying us. God, yes. us. Yes, us. So now we have this singular God we know from other scriptures, that speaks of himself in the plural. Exactly. Yeah. Plural as in yeah. There are people that do not want to believe in the Trinity and they say this is a plural of majesty. This is like the king sitting on the throne. We have decided that we will do this, and they're speaking of themselves. They're not talking about themselves in their court. They're speaking of themselves. But that's not what he's doing. He's speaking of himself. In, he is speaking in the plural because God is three persons. Twenty-seven God created man in His. Well, even when a king is saying it, he's he might not be giving credit to his court, but there is a court, and there is more than one person there. Yeah, but that's not what a king is. That's a plural of majesty. Is a king thinking he's so great that he speaks of himself in the plural? We have decided this, but in reality, it's just him. Just that king or whoever it might be. It could be a queen, I suppose. What? 
I was gonna say we just call him Gollum. Gollum from Lord of the Rings. <laughs> oh, oh. What do they call that when you have more than one personality? Uh, multiple personality yeah, yeah, yeah. disorder. <laughs> well, that's what the Jews do with it, right? They say it's yes. the plural of majesty. Yeah. But then how do you get those passages in the Psalms and what, where my Lord said to my Lord and, you know, yeah. or facing each other. Yeah. It's not... You could say plural of majesty when you're speaking, but when someone is facing somebody else, it's no longer the plural of majesty anymore. Yeah. Or it can't be anyway. Yeah. Either, either you're facing somebody else or you have mental issues <laughs> that you think, yeah. Turn to chapter 3, Genesis 3, verse 22. That is the first time I've heard that about plural of majesty. Oh, yeah. Genesis 3.22 And the Lord God said, Behold, man is become like one of us. us to know good and evil. And so, again, God refers to himself in the plural. Turn to chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. That was 3.22. Uh, Genesis 11. 11 and verse 7. Genesis eleven seven it said, uh, well, verse 5, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they have one language, and this is what they begin to do now. Nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language that they may not understand one, another, one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them. But again, let us, let us. Seriously, the plain, simple reading of it is that there is more than one person. But having said that, just in case, we've, we, we're not going over all these. There's a slew of verses do this, but we're going to go to Isaiah chapter, Isaiah chapter 6. That doesn't seem right. Oh, yeah. No, that is. I know what it is. I'm sorry. My, I was mentally jumping ahead. <laughs> Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, and this is in the, the holy, holy, holy fashion. By the way, I, I like the fact that you guys have us sing that song, because I did not grow up singing that song hardly at all. And it's a really a good song. So, I've enjoyed that. But It's one of the five songs I know, so. <laughs> well, I know one more song than you do. That's <laughs> Anyway, Isaiah chapter 6, in, in the midst of this holy, holy, but which there may be, there may be a, an implication for the Trinity in the three statements, holy, holy, holy. Um, but if you go to verse 8, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? So again, there's a plurality as the Trinity here is talking among themselves, just as in Genesis chapters, uh, chapters 1 and in chapter um, 6. But now let's go over to back over to Isaiah 44, where we were just a little bit ago, and we already talked about this one, Isaiah 44. And when we were here before in Isaiah 44, we read verse six because it says there is one God, but there's another thing that goes on, which we pointed out briefly. It says, "Thus says Jehovah." 
or uh, however people want to pronounce it today, the king of Israel, and now there's another person, his redeemer, Jehovah of hosts. There's two persons here that are involved in this. Isaiah 44, 6. Isaiah 44.6. Most of your Bibles say, thus says the Lord. Mm -hmm. 44.6. Thus says the Lord, the Mine king. says, therefore my... Uh, oh, that's Jeremiah. No oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. I wanted it. Thanks for telling us about Jeremiah. <laughs> so Isaiah 44.6. Thus says the Lord, the king of Israel, and his redeemer, the Lord of hosts... So you got two persons here that are that are in this addressing something together. They're speaking. They're they're in agreement on what they're saying, which goes right along with the Gospel of John. The words that I say, my they're from, they're not from me. They're from the Father. He's the one that does His works. Yeah, and if the if it was only one person, then it that it would be God is the redeemer, not. His not his redeemer in this and his is, is a small letter h in oh. bibles meaning they're taking it to be oh, israel's redeemer israel. but i understand it to be god's redeemer god is the one that sent this redeemer so i would make that h capital that's but that's interpretive you can't tell by looking at the pronoun that's just the way i understand this but now let's turn over to chapter 48 isaiah 48 Isaiah 48. We have to go back to verse 12 in this because you, you need to see, you need to kind of see who's talking here. And it says in Isaiah 48, 12, Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, my called one, I am he, the first and the last. So who's talking? In general? God. God. God's talking. So now, we go to verse 16, the one that is talking, come near to me, hear this, I have not spoken in secret from the beginning, from the time that it was, I was there. And now the Lord God and his spirit have sent me. So one person who is, yeah, this is the Trinity. There are a lot of, when I went to seminary and what you read in a lot of theology books is the Trinity is a New Testament doctrine. I don't think so. I really think these Old Testament people had a better grasp of what was going on than you and I sometimes give them credit for. So is that me, a lowercase or an uppercase? M? Yours has a lowercase m in yours. Uh -huh. Mine has an uppercase. Really? So it's talking? Because it said, we, that's why I went back up to verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob. I am the first and last. So the one that's speaking, this is the one that's being sent. And okay. the first and the last, that's God. God. Yeah, yeah. that's right. You see, it really, it's used of Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation. Yes. Mm-hmm, yeah. So, uh, so again, this and are, are there other Trinitarian verses here in the Old Testament that are like this? Yeah, there are. In fact, Josh made mention of one over in the book of Psalms a little while ago where David says, the Lord has said to my Lord. How can David have another Lord. That would make him somebody worshiping another God if he has another Lord. That, so somewhere in, in David's mind, he didn't have a problem with these two persons both being this one God. That wasn't a, that wasn't a conflicting issue for him. But what about those things where prophets would speak things but they didn't understand them? 
and and that's and that was also true but i don't think that that's true with regard to these and i think that that's one of the reasons in the gospel of john and we've looked at those where jesus tells the people look at your scriptures they testify of me they were having their biggest problem was looking at this man and agreeing that he was god and he says you ought to read your own old testament scriptures i think he's kind of indicating by that some of those guys got this better than you guys do and you guys are supposed to be bible experts and you don't appreciate that your old old test your own old testaments said these things about me. And that kind of that whole idea kind of comes back in too when you, when the Gentiles it was opened up for them that they were going to go to the Gentiles. And he references passages. The Old Testament talks about Gentiles getting saved mm-hmm. out in the future. It's not we're not talking about the exact same timing, but you know. And so it shouldn't have shaken them up, yeah. but it it was shaking up those Jews back then when he would. Yeah. Yeah, it was offensive because it was going to subvert the power that they felt they that they had accumulated to themselves. It wasn't because they thought somebody was contradicting scripture, it was because they were about to lose the grasp that they had thought they had they thought like, they owned God. Well yeah. they you know, were the chosen the people. Were the chosen people, yeah. yeah. They were threatened. They were threatened by what they thought was going to be losing their, their power. Which they, were, they weren't going to lose their power. That's right. So now, really for our last one that we're going to look at in this, and again, like I said, this is crash course in Trinitarianism. That's what we're doing. But turn to John 1 in verse 1. John 1, 1. Speed course, not crash course. Speed course. Okay, we'll call it that. No, it's... Hopefully nobody crashed in the process. <laughs> but John 1.1, 1, 1, which we've already looked at before in this study, in inequality of beginning, meaning anytime there was a beginning. I don't care when that beginning was. If there was a beginning, then the word, then the word was existing. Whenever and there was a beginning. Whenever there was a beginning. Because there's no definite article in front of the word the, or, or in front of the word <laughs> beginning. There's no definite article. Which, by the way, if the son had a beginning, what would that mean? He wasn't created. God. He was begotten God's eternal. as no beginning. Was created. He was created. Yeah. Yes. If yeah. if yeah. if he had a be, it would turn this on its head because because the problem is is if he had a beginning, then he was already being God before that. How does how do you have a beginning and you're already see it doesn't make any difference and that's the significance of the word was, in the Greek the word was is an imperfect tense which means it was ongoing at that time. It doesn't just mean it was at a point in time. It means it was all, it was already going on and it was continuing in the past. That's the idea of the imperfect. It doesn't tell you how far past. doesn't tell you how far forward. But the thing is, by this very statement, if he has a beginning, it just turns this whole statement on its ear. It doesn't make any sense. So says, in a, in a quality of beginning, in a beginning, the Word was existing, and the Word was, we had mention of this already, facing God. He's not schizophrenic. He, he doesn't have multiple personality disorder. That's technically what's, what's going on. Multiple personality dis- disorder, um, which is different than schizophrenia. Um, but he, he would have this, because he's facing, he's facing another person who is God. And he, and the Word, was being God. 
So this verse is saying that he's facing a person who's God, but he himself is God. But we've already laid the basis in Scripture that there is only one true God. So if there's only one true God, and he's facing one who's God, and he is God, that means they have to be the same God. It doesn't say they're the same person. They're the same God. Would you say that there's... I don't mean to interrupt, but... Um, no. is, would you say there's a similarity or a... between a beginning and a something coming to be? So, uh, Ginomai and Arche. Well, I, certainly, I would certainly think so, which is why the significance, I think, of verse 3, if a person has that, all things that came, all things came to be without him, and without him, nothing you, came to be that has come to be. I just hear some, somebody yeah. saying the nonsensical thing. So this means this person, whenever there was a beginning, he was pre-existing it. It doesn't tell you how long back, but anytime there was a beginning, he, he was there. Mm -hmm. So anything that came to be... He made it. He made it. That's right. Which means if he came to be... He was there before that. Yeah, which doesn't make any sense. Yeah, well, yeah. He exists before existence. Right. He's the ultimate cause is yeah. what this is. Yeah. That's right. Right. He's never caused. He is the cause. And so with that, let's go back to John chapter 14. John chapter 14 and put in again where we... Where we we're looking here, John chapter 14 and verse, verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. But if not, he says, believe on account of the works. And it just goes back to the idea of the things that he said and the works that he did. At least believe because of the works. Which is, he, he's told other people this during his earthly ministry. You don't promise me being God. You struggle with, you're looking at me, but at least let, be, be impressed by the works by the stuff I'm doing. And when he says works, he just told us back in verse 10, by works he meant not only the signs he did, but the things he said. All of that. What he said was precisely what the Father wanted him to say. The works he did were precisely the works the Father wanted him to do. And the Father would have done the same had the Father been man. He says, so at least believe those. And that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. Remember, that means they're both one God, but they still maintain their distinct identity. They don't get confused. And the same is true of the Spirit, though the Spirit is not being talked about in this context. Because he's talking about himself and the Father. It almost seems as though he's advocating for like apologetics at that point. Because, you know, examine it. You see, so you, you can't believe it from this perspective you know, seeing me. So look back at the evidence that preceded me, the works that I've done, to, you know, weigh them to see that I am who I say I am. Yeah. I don't know if I'd say that he's arguing for apologetics, but I do. I would just say that at least he's saying, I've done the things that the Father gave me to do that were to witness about who I am, my, to, to demonstrate to you people, I really am God. Look at what I've look at what I've done. At least consider those works. And so he says, verse twelve. Truly, truly, I say to you, the one believing in me, and we're going to come back and look at this next week. Truly, the works that I do, that one will do, and greater works than these he will do, because I'm going to the Father. We're going to put that one on hold. We'll come back to that 
next week. That's something this gives you know to know where we're going. Something something for you to think about, something for you to chew on. The greater? What? The greater. Yeah, for you to think about that. So don't answer it now. Just save it for next week. Think about that. And if you think about it, just don't come up with a, a statement. Maybe think about think about some scriptures. Maybe think about the Gospel of John itself and how the Gospel of John might combined with some other scriptures, how it might help us understand a little bit more of what he means by that. So I hope our speed course, crash course, however we're going to refer to it, uh, on Trinitarianism is just, just a good reminder. Um, I don't, you, you may never have had this, but I've had times when I have had long discussions around here in particular with Mormons. Um, the Oneness Pentecostal guy, that was, it was just so crazy. Uh, the things that he said. But when I've had long talks with Mormons, and I haven't had one uh, on this nature for quite some time, I actually I, I end up going sitting down, and I end up going back, and some of these verses, I've got, I've got a lot more, especially a lot more in Isaiah that I go through, but I go back through and I read through these verses. Because in the end, it's not about how savvy I am. I always think it's about how well I can find it in the Word of God. And uh, I'm just trying to think, Somebody was talking about recently about a, uh, I think it was a bio test at a university. And they were talking about the fact that the professor in that class lets the students bring in what they want to bring in. They can bring the textbook in to the classroom. We, we, we even had like a beginning bio 101 in college. We both had the same professor a semester apart. And, uh, but he always told the kids, whatever you bring into the class, you can that you can carry in the door. You can do it. And one of them yeah, carried one a time. one time one of one of his one oh one students carried a graduate student <laughs> in. <laughs> you know. But but the, there there was a weakness though in that idea that whatever I can carry into class I can use on the test. Because you've got a window of time to take that test. And if you're trying to answer questions and you're constantly going through your book. Oh, where is that? What chapter is that in? You're doing that all the time. There's a chance you might not get through all those things. Okay. But the idea is you don't have to know everything, but you ought to be able to try to know how to, how to find it, how to hunt it down. That's one of the reasons that, I mean, if you looked at my Bible, my Bible is marked up. I've got arrows running across the page to other things and things underlined, and I've created my own chain references because this is in fact i even though i'm trying so hard to get josh to give up his king james interlinear i understand why it's hard because it's loaded with notes i graduated my seminary bible a long time ago and i've been using this one now for 20 years i don't think i could graduate this one because i've had way more notes in this now but the thing is by putting those notes in there it helps you find your way to things that you want to remember when you need to but it's also good to kind of practice thinking through some of those because, you know, sometime, and this happened years ago, we went to a third day concert. Ben and Lindsay gave us tickets to see third day several years ago. And we were in, Port, in, in, uh, Spokane. in Spokane and we were talking about something before we got there and I got a verse stuck in my head and I didn't think to bring a Bible. I always carry my Bible with me when we travel and I didn't. And I'm trying to find this verse in the hotel Bible and I can't find it and it's driving me nuts. And this is before you could pull out your phone and look it up. But, oh, but, but all of that to say, 
this is good. This is the kind of stuff to learn and the stuff to, to put down and to use the back of your Bible on those blank sheets to write organized notes that help you get to the verses in your Bible and then just to encourage you. Uh, it's a good, it's a, it's a really good habit. That is, in my opinion, the only downsize to this, but my wife's figured out how to make this work because she notes and makes marks even on her, her uh, digital Bible so that she can do that with. But uh, anyway, that's, that's just a little challenge aside from our main study tonight because the doctrine of the Trinity is important. Uh, and in fact, um, Josh made this comment. I think he was the one that made this comment earlier. Um, salvation, your salvation in part rests on the doctrine of the Trinity. Did you know that? Because when Christ hung on the cross, one of the things that happened on the cross, what'd you say? He has to be all sufficient. That's true. But when he hung on the cross, what's one of the things that happened on the cross? Yeah. How could he be separated from the Father if there's not another person? Right. See? So that's why a oneness Pentecostal, that's why they have to believe in works for salvation because that person, who is he separated from? Himself? Is he separated from himself? Now you got to, again, you've got a person with multiple personality disorder problem, see? But if you understand... <laughs> but if you've got a person that actually has had that is one God and has had perfect unity from all eternity. And even for the space of three hours, that, that phone line is shut off. It's disconnect. They can't get, he can't get through. There's no, and I don't know what that communication is like. I, I don't fully, I don't think we ever fully appreciate what that constant communion and fellowship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit was like. Um, but, uh, I don't know. Hopefully that kind of gives you an illustration of why this doctrine of the Trinity is important. That's so, just one illustration on your salvation. Yes. With that comment that you made, it just brings up this question about he was separated from the Father and the Spirit in his humanity. Right. He? Right. Well, then what? But his deity was experiencing it too? No, it's just he's just not operating in the realm of his deity. He's not right. using, he's just not using that using, part of it. Yes. Right. So, but it's his person, remember? Right. You, we don't have two people. We have one person. Right. And so in his consciousness, in the realm of his consciousness, he's operating over here in the realm of his human consciousness. He's not operating over here in the realm of divine experience. Mm -hmm. Let's see. So he's just and so this so this is what he as a person is experiencing. Set aside the free exercise of his of his deity, yeah, uh -huh. Uh -huh. to do to become a slave, slave to do somebody else's will rather than him just deciding what mm -hmm. to do of himself. Yeah. You said you had two. There was that one. Was there another one? No, oh. Philippians two. Oh, Philippians two. I thought you. I thought I heard two in there. Uh, bad bad hearing. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But with that, we will.